Well, good morning again, and I think you're ready for some fun and some good food after the service this morning. I see the games are ready, the tents are set up, and I'm sure the food is ready to go as well. So it'd be good to enjoy a time of some fun and, and just uh, hanging out with one another after this service. As you see on the, on the screens ahead of you, those huge words, one another, they actually appear um, some 100 times in the New Testament. In Greek, it's only a single word, but uh, in English, it comes across as two. Over and over again, primarily in the writings of the Apostle Paul, we find these words, one another. This is what you should do to one another. This is how you should treat one another. This is what you should not do to one another. And there are a whole variety of those. The, ones, the one we're going to focus on today is in the bottom left corner, love. It's going to be brotherly love for one another. That's what we're going to look at today from Romans chapter 12. But there are many, many different ones. Next week, we're going to deal with one of the do nots. Do not judge one another, which will be our topic next week, Lord willing. But uh, this, this phrase, one another, appears so many times. And the main one, the main one another, is the words love one another. So with that in mind, I thought it'd be uh, appropriate to try to define what is love. Now, in our society today in the U.S., if you wanted to find out what does the word love mean, the first place you would go to find out is? Someone said Google. Yes, Wikipedia. That's the first place you go. So I went to Wikipedia, and here's what I found out. Love is a variety of different feelings, states, and attitudes that ranges from interpersonal affection to pleasure. It can refer to an emotion of strong attraction and personal attachment. It's baloney. Um, skip Wikipedia. Let's go to a dictionary. Maybe we'll get a better one from there. Strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. Attraction based on sexual desire. Affection and tenderness felt by lovers. Affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests. Number two, warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion. And number four, unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another. Getting a little closer. Maybe philosophy can help us. Let's go to Aristotle. Love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. Just like a philosopher, you don't know what in the world they're talking about, but it sure sounds good. Well, skip philosophy. How about religion? Surely religion can tell us what love is all about. Let's quote Buddha. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself as much as anybody in the entire universe deserve your love and affection. <laughs> well, no, Buddha. Let's try Hollywood. <laughs> I love that feeling of being in love, the effect of having butterflies when you wake up in the morning. That's special. Yeah? But that's not love. That's called butterflies or a quiver in your liver. Um, well, sometimes real clever people can say things that don't mean anything, but it sure sounds cool. Love is that sinking feeling. 
whatever that means. Well, music. Of course, the great musicians always let us know. All you need is love. The Beatles, John Lennon told us that one. But this is my favorite. This one hits it right on the head. Here it goes. Love is a feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling you have never felt before. Well, so with all these definitions, we leave ourselves and our children and everyone wondering, what in the world is love? Did you notice what all of them, all of them had in common? Every single one of those definitions had something to do with the feelings that you have yourself. That is love. Whether it be philosophy or religion or Hollywood or dictionaries or the internet, Everyone says that this is love. It's basically an emotion, a feeling that you have. Now, Jesus wouldn't quite agree with that. Here's what our Lord Jesus said. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, here's what love looks like. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, that's quite a different definition of love than any of these others that we saw. And so it leaves us with the great question, what is love? And today, we're going to find the Apostle Paul is going to define it for us in, for in Romans chapter 12. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, please do so. And as you do, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, I'm going to read this passage. And you'll notice three times it's going to use the words, one another. Listen as I read. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will, reap, you will weep, heap rather, burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now in this passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us what it means to love one another. But unfortunately, what I just read to you was 30 commands. Now, I suppose you got all those, didn't you? I'm about you didn't get any of them. That's the problem with this passage. This is a, a passage that in, 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 in almost machine gun fashion, he says, do this, 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 30 of them. Now, I know that if you try to absorb 30 today, you're going to end up with zero. So I've got another suggestion find one. You're going to find 30 commands in this passage as to what it means to love 
have brotherly love for one another. Find one. Ask the Holy Spirit to touch your heart with just one. It's easy for us to find one of these that you really need God's help on. Maybe focus on that one. You'll never get 30. Nobody will. Now, back to a background. This is found in the book of Romans. Many people consider Romans to be the most important thing ever written in human history. This is the most important thing ever written in human history. That makes it pretty important. It is incredibly well devised. Last week, I pointed out the S's that you can start each section with. Today, I'm going to point out something different. Four times in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses the word therefore. He makes this, he, he, he reasonably talks about a subject and he says, therefore. And then he's going to talk about another subject. And he's going to say, therefore. And another subject, therefore. And the last one, therefore. Let me tell you what they are. He begins the book with three chapters talking about the sinful state of human beings. All human beings, religious people, moral people, good people, bad people, all of us. And then he ends with this, therefore, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. That's his main point. Here's the therefore. If you think you can follow the rules and please God, you're wrong. No one can do it. Therefore, the next section he's going to talk about how since we cannot fulfill the law, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He took the penalty of sin for us. He offers us his righteousness. And then he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You can never have peace with God by following the rules, but you can have peace with God by faith, trusting what Jesus did for you. The third, therefore, is, is sometimes called the therefore of assurance. After talking about now what Christ has done for us, he says there, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, Jesus did for you. I love that one. There is no condemnation. We don't fear condemnation because Jesus has set us free. But the fourth therefore is the therefore um, it's called the therefore of dedication. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies now as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable worship. So there's the fourth one. We're in that section now. God is telling us now, in light of what he's done for us, this is just your reasonable way of responding to it. And that's why he's now going to give us 30 commands as to how we should love one another with brotherly love. Okay, let's see what it looks like. First thing he's going to, I'm going to divide this into three sections. The first section he's going to deal with is, in general, what does love look like? And then the next section is, what, what does love look like for people who aren't like us? And then the third section is, be, what does love look like for people who hate us? We'll see them in general. Number one, he begins with love 
must be sincere. Now, actually, there, there is no verb in this sentence. It simply says, literally, it says, the love sincere. And so you could say that the rest of this whole passage is simply a definition of what love sincere looks like. Now, the word sincere means something that's genuine. And the opposite of sincere is, interestingly, sentimentalism. The very way that we define love in this society, which is basically sentiment or feeling or emotion, is the opposite of what the Bible says. No, love must not be based on sentiment. Love is based on reality. At the core of your being is love. The word sincere here is the word that's derived from the stage, from play acting. Love is not hypocritical, and as you know, there are people all over Hollywood that we watch movies all the time, and when we look at them, we say, that is real love, because it does look like real love, but they're just play actors. And the Bible says, first of all, we're not play actors when it comes to love. We're sincere about it. Then it says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. This is probably the greatest error of our society today. Love in our society has not only been defined as sentiment, Love in our society has been loosed from all moral and ethical restraints. We love ice cream. We love sex. We love uh, so-and-so or something. It, it, there's no moral restraints to it anymore. Actually, God says, no, if it's not good what you love, it's not love. We are to hate, it's a strong word, what is evil. We cling to what is good. This is a man who's a, the, probably the best-known commentator on the book of Romans today. He wrote a big, fat commentary. This is what he wrote on this passage. Love, Paul suggests, first of all, has a moral dimension. We tend to think of love as an emotion that we have little control over. We fall into it and we drift out of it. But in the Bible, love is a matter of the will. We determine to love. Love is not primarily an emotion. Love is primarily a, a, a commitment. It is primarily a decision. It is primarily an act of the will that is carried out with action. It's not just sentiment. Love is sincere. You love what is evil. I mean, you, you, you hate what is evil. You love what is good. And here's our first one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's, that's the centerpiece of this. Paul says that, that the, the centerpiece of love is not yourself. The centerpiece of love is the other person. Now, obviously, when, when Buddha said that we need to love ourselves, there's some truth to that. You can't hate yourself and think you're going to be uh, someone who loves other people. Well, he's right in that. But the essence of love is not the love of oneself, because the Bible seems to indicate that we're pretty good at that. But the love of the other person, we're not real good at. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another. Here's another one another above yourself. You see, at the heart of lovelessness is typically is my own ego. I'm out for number one. I'm out for myself. But God says, no, love is about seeking the good of the other person, not your own good. You honor people above yourself. That is what love is. Now, the problem with this is, if, in fact, you love people more than you love yourself, you're going to get used. And you're going to get used up. 
and you're soon going to become angry, and you're going to give up. God knows that. He says, don't be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Remember who you're serving, the Lord. The Bible says in the New Testament many times that we love because we've first been loved. We forgive as, as we've been forgiven. God doesn't say, just forgive or just love. He says, no, 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 you can't do it. You can't pull off forgiveness. You cannot pull off real love until you know that you are loved. He doesn't say until you know how much you love yourself. He said, you already do that. He says, you need to know how much you are loved by God. You need to know how much you've been forgiven by God. And then extend that to other people. God knows that love can easily run dry, especially if you give yourself devotedly to other people's welfare. God knows that. He says, you need to fill up your tank with an understanding of how much you have been loved by Jesus Christ. That's how our tank gets full. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Love has a cost. Many times you love people that is not reciprocated in kind. Many times that's true. That doesn't mean you stop. It means you continue to hope. You continue to maybe take flack. And you never stop praying. All of us have to deal with that. Share with God's people who are in need. That's in fact what we're going to do as we leave this morning, as we go out these doors. There will be elders there with a plate. An opportunity to share of your financial resources with people in this congregation, in this community, who are in need. There's a way to practice that. Practice hospitality. Actually, the word hospitality comes from a Greek word, which means you love stranger. And the word love strangers and the word practice uh, means go after with a lot of zeal. It's a very strong word. Give yourself devotedly to the love of strangers. Now, in the society in which this was written, they didn't have Holiday Inn. Well, they did. It was called a house of ill repute. That's what they had. They had places where prostitutes would hang out, the red light district. That was common. The inns of the first century were usually places that were really bad. And so Christians, as they traveled around the, the ancient world, they came to a town and they needed a place to stay and they didn't have a lot of options. And so the early church practiced hospitality. You're welcome in my home. I have a fray bed for you. And they would often do that. There's a problem with that. You can be taken advantage of. One of the comical things that I love to read in the earliest Christian writing we have, you see, the, the last book of the New Testament was written around the word number 95 A.D. It's written by the Apostle John. Around the year 100 A.D., you have your first Christian writing that's not in the Bible. It's called the Didache. And this is one of the things it says. I think it's kind of funny. It says... Accept anyone who comes to you in the name of the Lord and you show them hospitality. But if they try to stay more than three days, you know they're a false prophet. That's what it says. So even God's really practical. But practice hospitality. But sometimes hospitality can be abused. And that's what it was in the early world as well as ours. So in general, what is love? And, and this is um, what, what I did. I, I tried to take these, these commands from God's word and put it into a single sentence that helps me to understand from the Bible, what is love? And this is what I say. Love is a heartfelt, that's where emotion is involved, 
a heartfelt commitment to the good of another person to which one devotes him or herself sacrificially, empowered by God's love for us. That's love. Love is a heartfelt commitment. I do it because I want to. A heartfelt commitment to the good of another person. I want what's best. I want what's good for them. To which I am willing to sacrifice myself. Why? Because I have been loved by God. That's what it means to love our brothers and sisters in Christ with God's devotion. That's what it means. But, and, and so, by the way, we live in a society in which love has been radically misdefined. It's a sentiment, it's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's temporary feelings of happiness. Just follow your heart wherever that may lead you. And um, that's not what the Bible says love is. Remember our verse, key verse last week? Do not continue to let yourself be rubber stamped by the world. We are being rubber stamped in our idea of what love is by our world. Do not let yourself be rubber stamped by the world's understanding of what love is. Don't be rubber stamped. Take what's good of it, but recognize love is not about me, it's about the other. Love is not about my feelings, it's about my commitments. Love is not about what feels good to me, but it's what, what, how I can sacrifice, if necessary, myself for the good of another person because I know what it's like to be loved by God. I know what it's like to be forgiven by God. I can forgive people. I can love people because of what God has done for me. But, there's always a but. But's one of, kind of one of my favorite words in the Bible. But sometimes you can be the world's best lover and it doesn't work. Because you're going to find in any church, like First Baptist Church, there are going to be people for all your lovey-doveyness they don't like you. <laughs> maybe they don't like the way you look. Maybe they don't like the way you talk. Maybe they don't like the way you dress. Maybe they just don't like you. Maybe they've got a different personality. Maybe they see you as below them or above them. Maybe they see you as successful and they don't like it because they're envious. Maybe they see you and they, they look and they see people downtrodden and they say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like them. How do you deal with people who aren't like you or don't like you? You see, one of the things about the body of Christ that's so interesting and so wonderful is that we have to love people we don't like. And that's, that's part of our job. In other organizations, if you don't like somebody, you, you avoid them. You kick them out or you don't let them in. We have to learn to love people we probably wouldn't normally like. So how do you deal with that? Well, here's what the Bible says next. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, you might think, well, that's not talking about church people. Oh, it isn't? You mean you've never experienced persecution from people in this church? Oh, I guess right. Of course you wouldn't because you're way too good up here in Wyoming. But in Colorado we face this. You guys don't have to, thankfully. Um, interestingly, if you look at the persecution in the Bible, the main source of persecution in the scriptures is insiders, not outsiders. The main persecutors of the true prophets in the Old Testament were the false prophets. The main persecutors of the apostles and the followers of Jesus were the religious leaders. 
They were insiders. And it shouldn't be any different for us. How do you respond when someone does you dirty and you did not do anything dirty to them? Blankety blank, blank, blank. I said, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's how you respond if you return in kind to what someone has done to you. But that's not how we operate. Remember, we have done that to God and he didn't hold it against us. Bless those who curse you. Don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I, I wish I could add something to the Bible. Now, you shouldn't read it if I did, but uh, this is what I would add to the Bible. It's one of the many verses I would add. The Bible says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But, this is what I'm going to add. It's easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. We do not find it too difficult when one of our brothers and sisters is hurting that we empathize with them and we grieve with them. I, I've seen you. I know what you're like at this church. You're good. But that's the easy one. Here's the toughie. Rejoice with those who rejoice. What if somebody who works at the same place as you do gets a huge raise and promotion and you don't? Or what if someone in this body becomes wildly successful? I deserve as much as, I'm as good as they are. I, I work harder than they do. The real test of a person's character is not so much can you mourn with those who mourn, but can you rejoice with those who rejoice? How do you respond when someone is wildly successful? Who is your peer? Do you deep inside your heart go, Yes. Um, there's an interesting passage, I think it's in 1 Peter, where it's talking about um, workers, how workers should respond. It actually might be slaves to their masters, which today in our society would be sort of the equivalent of, of a worker that works for a boss. And it's got this strange statement. It says, um, if, if, you, if your boss happens to be a Christian, what do we do in typical society? Well, if they're a Christian, I can take some special liberties. After all, they're my brother in Christ. That's what we do. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if you have the privilege of having a Christian who's a boss, this is what you should do. Work twice as hard so that you can make them rich. Is that the thought you have? Let's say you're one of those that's privileged to have a Christian boss, and you think in your mind, you know, I... I'm going to really, I want my boss to become just rich. And I'm going to work as hard as I can so they can because they're my brother or sister in Christ. Is that how you think? That's what the Bible says. See, it's very difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's one of the great tests of love because there's something deep in our hearts that's jealous and envious when we see someone succeed. That's the real test. Oh, when a brother and sister in this body is, is successful and prosperous, let's rejoice. Because that's what a person who loves does. Live in harmony with one another. You know what the word harmony means? The Bible doesn't say live in melody with one another. It doesn't say that. Melody means you all sing the same tune in unison. Harmony means you sing a different note, but the note doesn't clash. It blends. 
We are not called to sing a melody, all of us. We're so called to sing in harmony. But you can get a lot of notes between a melody and a harmony that will cause it to clash. One of our desires, our goals, is to sing in harmony with one another. One of the ways that you won't do it is if you're arrogant. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You see, in, in the society in which Paul wrote, there were five clear classes of people. There was the ruling class, there was the upper class, there was a very small middle class, there was a huge working class, and there was the slave class. Those were the five. And guess what? We find out from the Holy Scriptures that there are people in every one of those five classes in the church. And the Apostle Paul says, I don't care which class you're from, whether you're from Herod's household or you're a slave. Don't. You put your pants on just like everybody else does. You get three solids a day and eat just like everyone else. You're not better than anyone else. Do not become class conscious. Be willing to associate with all kinds of people because they're precious in God's sight. That's how we love one another. But there's a third category. Occasionally in life, and more often than we would like, we encounter people who hate us. There's a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. I mentioned it in the first service, and a number of people asked me about it. It's written by John Dickerson. Dickerson was a pastor. He's a pastor now, but he once was a journalist and a, um, and a specialist in statistics. And what he did is he simply um, cited statistics about what is going to be happening with evangelicals in America today. And he says, what I write is not my prediction. You might take it as my prediction, and then you throw it out. This is absolute fact which will happen and is happening. One of his chapters is called Hated. And he goes into great detail with all kinds of factual data about how evangelicals in America today are increasingly hated. I, don't, I think it's in, 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 inescapable that that's true. Okay, what do you do? What do you do if, if you just bear this label, which I bear proudly, I'm an evangelical. I mean, evangelical means I believe in the gospel. What do you do if you're an evangelical in a society that simply because you are one, no matter how nice you are, you're hated? What do you do? God knows that that happens. Here's what he says. Don't repay evil for evil. You don't respond to those who hate you with hatred. Don't do it. Don't respond that way. This is in the book of Proverbs. You see, in, in the book of Proverbs, we have, there are many different words that are used in Proverbs for the word fool, from very mild ones who are naive people, they're fools, to very advanced fools who are called scoffers or mockers. These are people who hate everybody, except probably hate themselves the most. If you correct a mocker, you're going to get insulted. You will be abused. If you rebuke them, they'll hate you. That's the reality. Um, in life, that happens. You can do nothing wrong. You're very good in your work. You treat people well. You treat all people well, no matter whether they believe like you or not. You treat all people well, and people still hate you. Maybe because of the label you wear. I am a Christian. How do you deal with them? Well, you'll get abuse. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Do your best to get along. But sometimes you can't. 
You can do the very best you can. You can be incredibly kind. You can go out of your way to sacrificially love people who don't like you. And you can do everything in your power. But sometimes it doesn't work. So what do you do? Don't take revenge. Never take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Because revenge or, 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 or judgment is not our business. That's God's business. Leave it for him. And now he's going to quote the Old Testament. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary. And now he's going to quote Jesus. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In, so, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's probably an expression that means if you respond to hatred with love, you may well make them so ashamed that they will fall on their knees and acknowledge God. Maybe. And he ends with this Oh, this is the words of Jesus. You have heard that, I, that it was said, love your, enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And it ends with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there, there's the 30. I hope you found at least one that applies specifically to you or to me. Just one thing that the Holy Spirit could cause you to take home and by God's grace make real in your life and so what is love from the three sections I picked out just one word be devoted the first section what is what is love love is devotion love is choosing or committing myself to the good of another person even to the point of cost to me because I have been loved by Jesus Christ. I'm devoted to one another. Harmony. There will be people in a church with whom we clash. For socioeconomic clash, personality clash, maybe even some theological clashes. How do we deal with them? God didn't ask us to think the same. But he did ask us to harmonize. Harmony is our goal. And what about those who hate us for no reason other than that we acknowledge Jesus Christ as not just our Savior, but the Savior of the world, which, as you know, is a very offensive concept in our world today. That will arouse hatred. What do you do? You don't respond in kind. Instead, you continue to pursue goodness. That is what love is. Let's pray. A lot of words, Heavenly Father, but you gave us your word, and only you can turn words into life. We pray that you do that, that these, this list of many commands would find a home in our hearts, whatever fits us, and that your Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance what we've learned, that you'd bring love out of our lives this very week and that the love of one another in this church would be powerful and would um, would be just a, a demonstration in this community about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I end with this quote. 
It's taken from my favorite book, favorite musical, favorite movie, Les Miserables. To love another person is to see the face of God. Please stand with me. Our goal is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us at the cost of his life. And as you leave this place, may the Holy Spirit empower you to love another person in whatever way God's laid on your heart. And may he give you great joy as you serve him. God bless you all.